Well, happy Easter. Uh, what I want to do this morning is pick up, if you were with us for Good Friday service just a couple days ago, we spent obviously time talking about Christ's death, uh, the moment that brought him to the cross. And so I want to pick up this morning, naturally, as we do on Easter mornings, from where we left off on Good Friday. And if you were here, we looked at two things about Good Friday we said were important about Christ's death. We saw how all of humanity funneled into this single moment of the cross, that is, all of human sin the trajectory of the world and all of the ways that people have tried to live into it, our own included, came to this single moment, this single point, Christ rejected by all, God himself pouring his wrath into this man, Jesus, as he hung upon the cross. We also saw on Good Friday the second thing, how the cross is that central point, the beginning point of the full realization of salvation. And everything funnels back out from that moment into every corner of our life. From the temple court to the market streets, from the legal benches, the pronouncements of judgment, all the way through to the meals spent in homes and around tables. Salvation pouring out from the cross in greater and bigger images. We said the early church quickly began to realize that it was their sin that had in fact put Jesus on that cross, not just Roman officials or corrupt high priests. They themselves realized they were participants, but just as quickly they began to realize all of the ways that, that moment, the cross, had changed their entire perspective on God, salvation, and life in this world. The real energy that began that search, the search by the early church to recognize just what Christ had accomplished, it wasn't just Christ's death, but it was this morning, the Sunday morning of Christ's vindication, his resurrection back to life. We're going to see in our passage we look at in a few minutes, that story of resurrection. The cross had been the shame for Jesus' followers who had fled under fear, Peter himself denying Christ, trying to save any semblance of his own reputation. But that morning, as they came together and they saw Jesus raised to life, resurrected, it forced them to reevaluate all of the conclusions they had been drawing about what God was doing and what Christ had accomplished. That Easter morning, Christ risen, changed everything about how they saw their world, about how they saw themselves, and about how they went through Scripture looking for the full realization of what Christ had accomplished. I've used this illustration before, but um, if some of you were to come up to Will, my son, and say, said to him, I have great news for you. A letter just came in. You've received a great inheritance, a large sum of money. Will, I'm excited to tell you that you now have $10 million. I'm not quite sure at four Will would have any idea what you were talking about. You would do much better to say, Will, I took $30 down to Walmart and bought you a new bike. Now, that's something Will would have been excited about. Um, a few weeks ago, he was doing chores for my mom at her house, and she offered him a $5 bill for doing these chores. And she said she was surprised when handing him this one measly piece of paper. He looked disappointed. Uh, $5 didn't seem like much, one piece of paper. So she was quick. She had raised sons before, and she offered him instead three $1 bills, which did the trick. He obviously got more excited about having three of anything than one of anything. Uh, the problem is, Will at four, like all of us at four, doesn't have a category for something like $10 million of inheritance, just not something he's experienced before. It's hard to see $5 as more than three when three in his hand feels like more. I think too often celebrating events like Easter is a little bit like that. This massive inheritance, not just Christ risen from the dead, but the promise and the hope of our own resurrection. The song we already sang about this morning, like him, we too, the hope of being resurrected. But for those of us who are forced to live in a world characterized more by death and suffering than resurrection, it's a little bit like hearing the news of an inheritance we're not quite sure how to rationalize or how to process. 
Most of us don't have a real category for what this new life, this resurrected life, looks like, what it means for now. We're still at the beginning of comprehending just how big this news is of Christ having defeated death. Christ is risen. Christ is alive. It's hard for that news to soak in, given our own preoccupations with to-do lists and chores, struggles and difficulties, pain, bitterness that characterizes so much of the life we live. But what we do this morning, what we do every Easter as we gather together and begin to think about resurrection, I'm convinced, is what we will spend much of eternity doing. When our own bodies on that day are resurrected, having overcome death, when we see the resurrected bodies of loved ones who have gone before us, when we see Christ himself in his resurrected body, we'll find ourselves in on a reality deeper than any of us could have ever possibly comprehended, held back by these mortal bodies that we now have. Eternity will forever take us deeper and deeper into understanding just what it was that Christ accomplished in that cross and just how profound this hope was that we received, that by his resurrection, he had overcome it. With that in mind, we refer to Easter and Christ's resurrection as our hope, the hope of resurrection, the hope that characterizes all of our faith, the way that we think about the future, and the way that that future hope pours its meaning back into this moment, this place of living. I want to look this morning at Luke's portrayal of that Easter morning. We find it in Luke chapter 24. Part of it you're probably familiar with, the beginning section of Luke 24, but I'm going to read all the way through verse 35, including this section titled, On the Road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24, we're going to begin in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, this being the women we've read about previously in chapter 23, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their face to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returned from the tomb. They told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, 
and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village in which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So we went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. When they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture, even outside of Easter itself. Um, the scene of the resurrected Jesus walking with his disciples, two of them, on this road to Emmaus. It's one of those great Bible stories that we've come back to, I know I've mentioned to you before. Um, maybe you hadn't really considered the scene as an Easter scene, but in fact, it plays out for Luke as the very first thing that Jesus does having risen from the grave. It's Easter morning. Luke begins his account with the women returning to the tomb, bringing spices to prepare Jesus's body. And when they arrive, they find the tomb empty, as we've heard before. They're greeted instead by angelic messengers. Rushing back to the apostles, they explain what had happened, and Peter jumps up, running to the tomb to see for himself. It's a powerful passage of Scripture, the resurrection passage of Scripture, and it ends with Peter marveling at what had happened. And the idea is turning over in his mind, processing, wrestling. But there's one missing element to that story, Jesus. He's risen, this great hope of all of Scripture, this final culminating event of Jesus' ministry. And when they arrive that morning, Jesus is nowhere to be found. A little anticlimactic, if you could be honest about resurrection. Um, I got to thinking this week, if I were Jesus, which, uh, first of all, is a dangerous thing to do when you read Scripture, so be careful with that one. But if I was Jesus, how would I have responded, having just come back to life three days after being crucified in humiliation before everyone? Um, I might have been the one, instead of the disciples rushing to me, for me to have gone rushing to the disciples, happily yelling, I'm alive, I'm alive, come look for yourselves. Or why not stick around the tomb? Jesus could have sort of kicked back and taken in the morning sunrise, breathed in the deep air. He would have been sitting there when the women arrived, and what a great scene it would have been as he embraced them standing outside the tomb that had just held his body. Why wouldn't he want to be there for that moment of big surprise, to see the looks on the women's faces as they realized he was there? It struck me this week how interesting it is that Jesus' first act as the resurrected and vindicated Lord was to go for a walk. 
set off down one of these paths alone early in the morning, the first thing Jesus did on this walk was catch up to two of his disciples who were abandoning hope in Jerusalem and headed back to their home village, Emmaus. As he came across these two disciples, he began to walk and talk with them for some time. The first image, the first act of Jesus resurrected. We aren't entirely sure where the ancient city of Emmaus was, but the passage tells us they were walking approximately seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Um, they had probably left Jerusalem that morning after the women had returned with hope, this belief that Jesus has been resurrected. The Passover events were finally complete in Jerusalem. They probably had about as much as they could take, the up and down roller coaster. Now the women bringing back this report, wondering to themselves what could have happened to the body of Jesus. These two disciples decided to cut out and head back for home. Um, walking to Jerusalem or away from Jerusalem is no easy walk. If you've seen pictures, I was there myself and saw it. It's hilly country, difficult terrain. This isn't like walking down the freeway to get somewhere. If these men are headed seven miles, it means they have a long journey ahead of them, a full day's walk. The average man walks about three miles an hour, so they say. So it's probable that these men had been walking for several hours that morning when Jesus finally caught up to them. The rugged terrain around Jerusalem would have slowed down their pace, and Jesus would have easily caught up and began the rest of that journey on to Emmaus. These men had already been walking some time, processing, processing his death, processing the failed expectations, the disappointments of what they thought that Passover would have held, processing the shocking news that somebody had taken Jesus' body, the wild and outrageous reports of these women coming back that he had been resurrected, in fact, was just a little more than they could take. They were headed home, and were told explicitly they were sad, disappointed. Luke tells us they were talking to each other about all of these things that had happened as they walked. Now, these two are, in fact, described as disciples, not the twelve apostles' disciples, but some of the followers around Jesus. Men who had come and followed Jesus into Jerusalem, expecting, eager to see what this great prophet, as they described him, might bring to fruition here at this great feast of Passover. They had big expectations about that particular Passover meal, the event and all that it might bring about. Their journey to Jerusalem had been one of expectation, one of faith and excitement. But that dream, that expectation had now been crushed. The report of the empty tomb somehow struck them as bad news. And as if the news of Christ's death hadn't been enough, now they left with all hope, all expectation gone. What really struck me this week is that Jesus' first resurrection act was to intersect these disciples who had lost hope. Two hopeless disciples quitting, giving up, trudging their way back home that Easter morning. Back to whatever ordinary life that they had left. Back to what ordinary place that they had originally set out with all of the expectation from. It's probably God's intention that they would not recognize Jesus on that road with them, but it also strikes us as a profound kind of irony. They had lost so much hope, so skewed was their expectations, their perspective, they had become so disillusioned by everything that had unfolded, that here was Jesus Christ himself resurrected, traveling with them down the road, the most personal presence of Christ imaginable, and yet still their eyes couldn't recognize it was him. Again, you might imagine Jesus would have run up to them saying, Surprise! Look! Turn back around! It's me! Don't you realize what has happened? But instead, Luke tells us 
but he walked with them. He kept pace, shoulder to shoulder, chatting, talking as they strolled through the hills, leaving Jerusalem. Luke says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Any conversation in the Bible I could have been present for, this probably would have been first on my list. Apparently, it lasted until they reached their destination. Several hours of Jesus Christ himself resurrected, opening up the Hebrew passages of Scripture and pointing out from Moses through the prophets how everything that had been written and all of their history had been anticipating this moment. And here he was in that resurrection hope, strolling along with two disciples who had lost all faith. The single sentence, Jesus expounding Moses through the prophets, has had a pretty profound impact on the way I think about Scripture, for many others as well. Remember on Good Friday I said that the early church had this eagerness, this desire, this energy to go back through all of the Scriptures they had read before in their Hebrew Bibles and suddenly uncover all of the ways that Christ's death and resurrection appeared, how it had been pointed to in all of the Scriptures they had read before. That's exactly what Jesus does with these first disciples, his first conversation after resurrection. He takes them back to the Torah, the books of Moses. He walks them through all of the predictions of the prophets. He points out scripture after scripture about how the Messiah must suffer but would be raised to life again. We read that as he taught, the disciples had an experience. Their hearts burned within them. Isn't that a great phrase? I pray every week as we do that, especially through some of these same Old Testament passages that no doubt Jesus himself was referencing on that road, I pray that we have that same experience as we read about men like David and Saul, Samuel, and all the ones before, that as we come together in these Old Testament stories, we might catch glimpses of Christ himself, and that as we do uncover this truth of who Christ is, our hearts might be moved, burned within us by the presence, the reality of Christ. It's a great scene. As everyone comes to sit down to eat, finally reaching their final destination, Jesus is urged to stay with them. He does. He goes inside, and they recline at the table, and Jesus reaches for the basket of bread, takes the bread into his hand, blesses it, breaks it, and begins to hand it around the table. And suddenly they recognize him. This is Christ. It's true. The news of resurrection, not some sham, not some wild exaggeration. Here he was, having walked with them for hours, breaking bread, passing it around to them. The way that Jesus spent the first day of his resurrected life. I want to make two suggestions this morning about Jesus and this Easter walk that he takes with his disciples. The first one is this. Our expectations have a tendency to discourage and blind us to what God is doing. And the second one, but our expectation of resurrection promises energy, a new way of looking at life. First, their blindness. The disciples that day had absolutely no expectation of the resurrection having been real. For them, death was the absolute end of the story of whatever or whoever Jesus was, whatever he was doing. The humiliation of crucifixion left no question this had meant defeat. Whatever this great prophet had been working, it was now over. Exclamation mark. They were all looking for a Messiah, all of the Jews, maybe thinking at times Jesus was in fact that Messiah. 
But their expectations about the Messiah is that he would be one blessed by God. That when the Messiah came, he would without question carry divine favor, blessing. That everything this Messiah touched and did would naturally flow and radiate with the hope, the blessing, the goodness of God himself. How could Jesus have been blessed by God, being God, when he was so easily put to death by common Roman guards? There's nothing miraculous about his crucifixion. He hung there and with a broken body like every other criminal that hung beside him. For those Jews who had expected one blessed, it would have been a hard expectation to have reconciled this humiliated, exposed, easily put to death Messiah. Jesus hadn't lived up to their expectations. It's really as simple as that. The flame of Jesus' ministry had been so easily snuffed out that no one had any expectation of something else coming after it. I think it's worth pointing out that these two disciples are good guys. Before we too quickly throw them under the bus as shallow faith, these are men who had followed Jesus, believed in Jesus, had great expectations about Jesus. They had no doubt made their own sacrifices to be there in Jerusalem for that Passover. They knew the risk of following a man like Jesus, the threat that it posed, yet still they had come with eager anticipation, faith, but you can be a disciple of Jesus and still not understand what Jesus is really doing. You can spend years reading your Bible and still not comprehend just what Jesus has accomplished for you. What had blinded these disciples was a certain kind of expectation. It's hard to admit, but you might as well go ahead and do it this morning, that we're all at this same risk, this risk of blindness, these two disciples suffering from expectations that kept them from recognizing what God was actually doing. We all have ideas. We have ideas about life, expectations about how things should play out. We have expectations of what we think God should do, what would be the just and right thing for God to do in any situation. We imagine ourselves how a blessed life should look, how if we make great sacrifices, if we follow his disciples, just how it should pay out for us. We pray in our own garden and expect to get our way, or maybe something even better than the way that we had imagined. But for sure, we have a certain trajectory in mind, a certain set of expectations about how a life following Jesus, where it should take us, and how it should be lived. These disciples are not the first to have been discouraged when things went wrong. And they're hardly the first to assume that when things go wrong in life, God must have abandoned them. God must not have actually been involved in what they thought he was involved in. The trap of their expectations was the narrow vision that it produced about life and about God. Their expectations put blinders on their eyes that forced them to see only the narrowest and smallest of path to which they were willing to conceive as God's work. Anything outside of that expectation simply fell off the radar blind. They couldn't receive what God was actually doing, couldn't even recognize Christ himself because they had so narrowed what they had come to expect about God. And so to them, Jesus says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Not the words you want to hear on Easter morning, <laughs> but true nonetheless. If they were going to recognize Jesus, it was going to mean they were going to have to put to death the expectations they had about life and about what he was there to accomplish. They won't be able to see the true resurrected Jesus if their eyes are only looking for the kind of Messiah they wanted, they expected, on their terms. Following the true resurrected Jesus was going to mean letting go of the world, 
as they had come to see it, as they had come to expect it. Resurrection had raised the man who had been put to death. But believing in resurrection would have to put to death all of the ambitions and expectations of every other man, all of the ways of the world. That's one way of saying the resurrection so changes the way we understand this world that in order to receive this hope, to really be in on the energy of resurrection Easter morning, it forces us to be willing to let go of our own expectations, our own assumptions about what lies ahead. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. That is, you will see resurrection hope. If you were really brutally honest, maybe with just yourself this morning, some of us don't find Easter and resurrection all that moving. It's easy to get moved by the fact it's spring and an important Christian holiday we're supposed to be moved by. But if you were really honest with yourself waking up this morning, sometimes this hope of resurrection, this deep meaning and hope of Easter just isn't that tangible. A big part of that is we wrestle with dying to our expectations. So much of what is happening around us seems more real, more tangible, more pressing. We're still trying to control things. We've got decisions to make about things, directions we're trying to go. When we think about life, we're thinking about what we expect, what we want, what we have planned. But the resurrection forces us into a position of responding, no longer a position of controlling. For these men, their lives were no longer about evaluating this Messiah, but instead the shock and realization that there he was alive in their midst their evaluations meaning very little to the truth of him being alive, the only action required of them to receive, to recognize, to accept. The world had changed. Resurrection means stepping into a world that functions entirely different than the one that you had previously been living in. And to receive well the hope of this Easter, the hope of Resurrection Sunday, is to come to terms with the fact that this truth changes everything about the world in which you have been living. It reshapes the expectations, it confronts your need to control, and the only option it really gives you is to receive or keep on walking towards Emmaus. That's hard to hear. We want control, we want our expectations met. It's hard because tomorrow we leave Easter Sunday, we leave the hope of resurrection, and we go back to jobs and responsibilities, none of which seem to take the resurrection too seriously. Most of the world around us is more concerned with death, more concerned with control, more concerned with our own way than living in the world believing in resurrection. A nice quaint idea for a Sunday service once a year, and that's about it. Honestly, you have to ask yourself this morning, how might the world in fact be actually changed if we really did carry with us this hope this real belief in resurrection. If we believed in resurrection the way we believe in something like gravity, or the way we believe in something like death, inevitable. They're the easy changes that would probably come about from such hope and resurrection. If living forever was something we were quite sure of, then it would probably settle much of the desperation, the hurry that we live our life in. I mean, look at how patient Jesus is. He doesn't seem to be in too much of a rush to get on with this whole resurrection thing. His first act is to stroll with two disciples, 
when an entire world is waiting to hear that he's been resurrected. The resurrected Jesus doesn't show much of anxiety or rush or desperation for time. Through resurrection, we obviously, if we believed it, would empty out the fear of death itself. If we really believed in resurrection, it would become a simple transition, a movement to the next phase. But Jesus' resurrection, believing this and living into it, is bigger than just about time, bigger than just about a new life after death. Jesus' death and his vindication through resurrection turned over the long list of expectations we looked at Friday in our Good Friday service. It proved that everything the world was doing, everything the world had come to expect, all of the ways that the world had pressed back against Christ, had been beaten. Think back to Friday. The greed we saw in so many around Jesus now seemed sort of petty, given what Jesus had. The violence that so many had used against him now seemed futile, a little pointless, when Jesus could simply stand up out of it three days later. The control and power they thought they were exerting to put Christ to death had been beaten by his weakness, turning the whole system upside down. The reputation that so many of his disciples had clung to now seemed like nothing. What was reputation when the very Jesus Christ they ran from now came back into their midst, vindicated and alive? Fear seemed silly. Everything that had gone wrong now sort of seemed like it had been planned all along for right. And everything which had been done for evil, God had turned around and used for good. By this hope and resurrection, Jesus hadn't sidestepped all of the pain and suffering that we live trying to avoid. Through resurrection, Jesus leaned into it. He leaned into the death. He leaned into the poverty. He leaned into his own humiliation. He leaned into loss and isolation. And as he rose that morning, vindicated by God, he turned it all upside down. The famous lines from Joseph, what God, what men had meant for evil, God had in fact meant for good. When you say that you believe God raised Jesus from the dead, as those of us who are Christians do, you're saying something that quite literally changes the entire way in which this world works. This is no simple affirmation of faith you make. This is no check box that you prove your orthodoxy as a Christian. To say that you believe that Christ was risen from the dead is to say that you see the world in a fundamentally different way than everyone else around you. Everything you have come to expect about pain and suffering and loss are no longer what you had been taught or what you had been expecting. Resurrection opens your eyes to a new way of living, a new way of looking at the world, of recognizing Jesus, not just in Old Testament passages, but alive, walking on the road with you, breaking bread, passing it around the table. The hardest part of Easter is trying to find the right way to say this to you. Easter's come about every year. Uh, if you want a little secret, pastors struggle with Easter sermons. Uh, there's so much that could be said, and we get one shot at it. 30 minutes, go. Uh, the truth is, this resurrection is one of the greatest moments in all of history, the pinnacle of everything that Scripture had been leading to. If you really believe in Jesus' resurrection, then the way you live is going to be dramatically countercultural. And to say that to you in one sermon in such a way that it really sinks in is an incredible challenge, because... In fact, this resurrection does change everything. Every expectation, every pain, 
every sorrow, every thought about tomorrow, every hope for the future. In this moment, resurrection breaks in and turns this world upside down. And if your life pretty much ends up looking like everyone else's, if you say to yourself, of course I believe in the resurrection, I'm a Christian after all, but tomorrow you walk back into the same world with the same perspective you've always carried with you, your life is probably better characterized by this road to Emmaus, walking away from Jerusalem, walking blind, walking away from the resurrection, your expectations having kept you from seeing just how big this truth, this hope of resurrection, actually is. Blind and sad, inevitably discouraged, trudging your way back home with nothing but a life of disappointment ahead of you. Thank God that Easter is not just Christ resurrected, but Christ willing to make his first act of resurrection, intercepting you on the road of discouragement, taking off your blinders, and helping you recognize just what you are now in on. The last thing I wanted you to see was this. To really believe in the resurrection is to find a new energy to live, for life, eternal life. Um, N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, writes this. Left to ourselves, we lapse into a kind of collusion with entropy, acquiescing in the great belief, the general belief, that things may be getting worse, but that there's nothing much we can do about it. And we are wrong. Our task in this present is to live as resurrection people, in between Easter and that final day, with our Christian life, corporate and individual, in both worship and mission, as a sign of the first and a foretaste of the second. We live as resurrected people, confident in this first resurrection, but with a taste already in our mouths of that great resurrection that's still to come. The first fruits, Christ's resurrection, a hope and anticipation of our own. Do you notice what happens when these disciples finally recognize Jesus sitting around that table breaking bread with them? It's a great scene. Remember, it's night. They've reached the end of their journey. They've been walking all day through rugged terrain. They're tired, ready to settle in. They've set up a meal. They've reclined at their table. They've started breaking the bread, passing it around. After walking all day, it's time to relax, like any of you who have traveled a long distance, 36 hours in an airport. When you get home, you want to kick your feet up, fall asleep, relax in your own chair. But verse 33 tells us, Seeing Jesus... They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. In the middle of the night, they go rushing all the way back to Jerusalem where they had just left. And they do it proclaiming, It's true. Jesus is alive. They're no longer on their way to Emmaus. If you really believe in the resurrection the itinerary of your life is going to change. The ideas you had, the places you were going, the paths you were on, will be affected by believing in this hope, the resurrected Savior. The resurrection means you will be taking roads and heading directions entirely different than the people around you. And I'm sure there were plenty who said, who are these crazy men headed back to Jerusalem in the middle of the night when they just got here a few hours ago? It didn't matter. If your life hasn't changed directions... If the direction of your life hasn't been reoriented, you may not have actually realized, recognized this hope of resurrection. You may be following some religious system, 
some set of rules, some expectation you have about what God is doing. But if you have received this resurrected hope, the resurrected God, and you know well how your life has been turned, the direction, the passion, the energy of it, redirected back to Jerusalem. Eugene Peterson writes, It's not easy to convey this sense of wonder, let alone resurrection wonder, to another. It's the very nature of wonder to catch us off guard, to circumvent expectations and assumptions. Wonder can't be packaged. It can't be worked up. It requires some sense of being there, and some sense of engagement in what's happening around us. I hope I can leave you with that phrase today, resurrection wonder. That's what turns the disciples completely around. It seems inevitable. The moment they realize Jesus, without much talk, within the hour, they're headed back. All of their expectations reworked. And every true believer will testify to this truth. Resurrection wonder. Maybe that wonder isn't as consistent, as ever-present in our lives as we would like for it to be, but those who have believed have felt it before. We know what it is. As these disciples have described it, the heart warming within us, feeling our heart burning alive, and then the wonder, the amazement, the realization that because this is true, nothing is the same, that this is the truth that characterizes and shapes and gives light to all other truths, to all other expectations. It is true indeed. He is risen. If God could vindicate and raise a crucified and humiliated Messiah, what more is coming? Resurrection wonder. What is in store for those of us who turn our lives and head back in the direction of Christ and his empty tomb, his disciples gathered together in this new resurrection hope, resurrection wonder? Tim Keller has one of the best ways of stating it, the simple, full impact of Easter, as anyone I know. He says, resurrection is Jesus' walking proof that you will miss nothing. Everything that is lost, everything that is broken, every expectation that is poured into your life, disappointment, the wonder of this resurrection is that none of it is lost. Nothing is missed. Resurrection is proof that this world will not get the final word. Not on your life, not on the lives of the ones around you. Resurrection is the proof that there is nothing which can be lost. Resurrection is proof that nothing can drag you under. Nothing can keep you there. Resurrection is proof that nothing has to be finally and forever broken. And resurrection is proof that God is doing something greater than your limited expectations could ever have possibly imagined. And that your entry into it is faith that wonders at just how big just how great this work is. Resurrection means that you are in on it. That Christ, the resurrected Christ, is breaking bread, handing it to you around the table, walking with you, reshaping your expectations, bringing your heart back to life, taking off the blinders, and sending you on a new trajectory, a new path. Like Christ, you will find your body raised. The hope, the foretaste of it right now, the anticipation of one day just like him, alive. Your eyes open to the sunrise of a much warmer morning than this one, that morning when our bodies are resurrected. How differently will you look at the world 
having been brought back over all disappointment and all death. The hope of Christ's resurrection is you can catch a glimpse of that now. Wonder in it. As Paul put it, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by the same power. Resurrection wonder. Receive it. Lean into it. Get on a different road and head back the opposite direction if that's what it takes. Set aside the expectations. It's a mystery, I realize. We're not always quite sure just where this resurrection path will take us. But if we're walking that path with Christ, the resurrected Christ, it's the road I want to be on. This resurrection is yours. It's yours to live into. It's yours to carry with you back into a world the day after Easter, which I realize may not take it seriously, may seem it is foolishness, but for those who believe, it is the power, the mystery, the wonder, the hope, the anticipation of what God is doing. So let me end with this, rightfully so, we'll worship. First Peter says this, First Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Statement of worship. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that's our hope. Through the hope of Jesus Christ, we worship God, receiving this new life, this new wonder. Let's pray and we'll stand and worship this morning. Heavenly Father, our hearts burn within us. We see this morning so clearly this resurrection hope is our hope and we receive it this morning. God, we receive it with joy, with anticipation, with excitement, because we realize, Lord, the expectations of our own hearts and our own lives have us on a path away from you. God, the disappointments of this world send us walking home with our heads hung low, discouraged, humiliated, defeated. But God, you intercepted us. Christ, your first steps were to us. That resurrected, you didn't stand around in your own glory, but you walked down the dirt road. You came alongside us. You showed us your way. You opened our eyes and you sent us back towards you. God, we are forever grateful. You have given us this hope of resurrection when it was not on our minds, not on our hearts. But still, by your grace, by your sacrifice and by your mercy, God, you raise us to life and you put in our hearts right now a foretaste of that resurrection to come. So as we did this morning, we sing, God, we believe in you. We believe in your resurrection. We receive the hope of your new life. God, let us worship you in the wonder of this gift that we've received. A resurrected Lord, a Messiah who vindicates and leads over death, who turns the world upside down. Who of us had seen it, God, but yet still we sat here this morning receiving it from you by your grace. How good is this grace? How good is this news? And so we worship you for it this morning. Let's stand and let's worship this morning.